The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where we are working each and every week to give you the inspiration and information you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. I... Uh, I guess everybody probably knows, like everybody in the whole world probably knows, that the last Wednesday of the month here on Real Life Real Estate is almost always open mic day. It's question and answer week where any questions that you have about um, anything about real estate investing are fair game. And uh, most longtime listeners probably know that I always uh, offer folks the opportunity to ask questions before the show starts by sending them to askvina at gmail.com. In fact, if you send an email with radio show question in the header any time of the day, night, week, month, I save those for question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. So we have a couple of those saved up here that folks sent in before the show. Uh, but also, we're going to take your questions uh, live during this hour at 8 Seven 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 two nine six five eight eight seven 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 two nine six five eight. Or again, you can just send them via email to askvina at gmail dot com. Don't have a whole lot today in the way of announcements since uh, the Fourth of July falls on a Thursday this year, and. That means that the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati's uh, normal first meeting of the month it will not be happening. However, RIA is going to have a, uh, a, a, a month where focus groups are open to non-members just so that you can check those out and see how amazing they are and... Um, uh, possibly in August, decide to become a member of the community just so that you can continue to to attend those. So during the month of July, if you're in the greater Cincinnati area, you'll have the opportunity to attend the rehab focus group, the creative finance focus group, the women's focus group, the passive investors group, the note buying group, the Kentucky group. There's, there's literally like 11 of them. I, I long since lost my ability to reel them all off. <laughs> there is not a bourbon group, but I think that's a fantastic idea. If we could, uh, if we could get somebody to lead that bourbon and bourbon and there's gotta be a B word that we can associate with that for the focus group. 
uh, and it's not bacon because that's already taken. Um, anyway, go to CincinnatiRia.com. You can check out the various groups that are available. We do ask that you pre-register if you plan to attend one. And uh, hopefully we'll see you during the month of July. It's question and answer week on real life real estate investing. Our first question comes from Pat in Indianapolis, who says, days on market have increased in Indianapolis. What should I focus on now since the slowdown? I've only been flipping homes, but I think now I need to implement another strategy. Uh, I'm going to assume, Pat, because... uh, the only the only folks who get who get worried about slowdowns are uh, retailers, people who are buying, fixing, and selling properties because it's easy to get stuck with a property because you uh, you thought it was going to be worth a particular price, and then when you finished it five or six months later during the slowdown, it was worth less than that. And then because it's a slowdown, it takes a long time to sell and holding costs are very expensive, much more expensive than people think. And so you end up in a position where you, you're looking at selling it at a break even or sometimes even a loss price. Uh, wholesalers don't worry so much about that. And, you know, folks refer to flipping to mean both wholesaling and retailing. So I'm going to assume you're talking about retailing. So this is my general advice for retailers in a slowdown, Pat. Uh, the mid-cycle slowdown, unless some, which is what's happening, uh, will, unless something horrible intervenes, be a relatively short and mild slowdown. Uh, 18 remaining months, maybe, 18 to... 24 maybe remaining months and uh in the last mid-cycle slowdown prices dropped like eight percent across the board so it's not 2009 all over again or 2007 all over again but uh that doesn't help you if you had a deal that went slightly awry and cost a little bit more than you thought to fix it and now it's been on the market for eight months and you can't sell it so number one piece of advice is uh start looking at your financing. If you're borrowing hard money to do these deals and that hard money has a six month balloon and a, you know, 12 or 15% interest rate, that makes it very, very difficult for you to do the thing that I'm going to say next, which is uh, if you've got a property you can't sell, rent it instead. Because the thing that typically happens after these mid-cycle slowdowns is that the market doesn't just fully recover, it it goes up above where it was when the slowdown started, and it happens pretty quickly. Uh, when you think about the 2001 mid-cycle slowdown, and then what happened between 02 when it ended and 06 when the market crashed, and how it, house prices were appreciating depending on where you were in the country, like 20%, 30% in some places, so being able to hold the property for a year to two years after you've renovated it allows you to get some income off of it, uh, let time do its thing, and ultimately sell the property at or above the price that you thought you were going to get. However, you can't do that if you've got 12% financing that balloons in six months. So you might want to think about 
uh, rounding up some private lenders possibly who would be happy to loan at maybe six or eight percent and do a three to four year term. Not that you're necessarily keep it that long, but uh, you want to give yourself that option, right? And the other general advice that I give to everybody about mid-cycle slowdowns is it is bargain hunting time. If you've been doing a lot of flipping, but you had intended eventually to be um, to be somebody who is holding properties for the long term, then a mid-cycle slowdown is a great time to grab some bargains because while overall prices might drop 8%, where they drop the most is in distressed properties, distressed sellers who can't get their property sold, who don't have a million people knocking their doors down, who uh, don't have the perfect property that the home buyers in the market do want, get more motivated. And of course, how do you sell your house fast? You make it cheaper, right? So that would be my general advice to you, Pat. And I very much appreciate the question. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll take your questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And I'm sorry if I sound a little bit distracted, but I'm actually texting a question right now to uh, a guy that I know that has uh, properties in Colorado. And the reason is I got a very specific question here about probates in Colorado. And I... You know, I, I know the real estate market pretty well, but I don't know it to that level. So I'm going to ask him if he knows the answer to the question. And the reason I'm even bothering to tell you this is because it is an example of why it is awesome to network with real estate investors all over the country. <laughs> um, normally, I can get an answer to this sort of question and look super smart. Actually, I was going to let him call it and answer it uh, himself if he answers me here. Um, but uh, the 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 reason that that people still go to live conferences instead of just you know going online and networking there is because you get to make like actual connections with people face to face conversations at the bar, you know. And then when you have a lead in some city that you don't understand, or you have a uh, question about the laws in a state that you don't live in, or you just, you know, you need some, I don't know, inspiration, whatever, you've got lots and lots of people that you can reach out and touch because you have met them in person. And a great opportunity to do that is coming up on October 31st through November 3rd here in Cincinnati. The National Real Estate Strategies Summit is uh, on those dates this year. You'll be hearing more about that in the upcoming weeks, and we will have a uh, super special deal for Real Life Real Estate listeners to attend that event, which is uh, nationwide. It's it's folks from not only all over the United States, but kind of all over the world. There were a thousand people registered last year, and 
We're expecting there to be upwards of that number this year as well. If you'd like to get a preview of that information, you can look at it at oreaconvention.com. That's O-R-E-I-A convention.com. And uh, we'll be talking about that more in the upcoming weeks. So questions are coming in like crazy at at askvina at gmail.com. Okay, that is not a question. It looked like one, but it is a spam email. Um, Okay, so this one is from Darren, who, as I recall, is from Michigan. He says, Hi, Vina. Hope all is well. When doing probate, which is better, to call or to send a letter to the representative? (laughs) Um, Okay, so, so cold calling has become this huge thing in the real estate business in the last three or four years as the um, competition, especially from big, well-organized companies, has increased. And the idea is that you, instead of, uh, um, instead of sending mail to prospective sellers and letting them call you and tell you whether they want to sell their house or not, you just call them. Uh, Often, in my experience, it is via uh, like sly dials where the phone doesn't actually ring, but a voice message is left or uh, it's via very, very obnoxious and ongoing calls from virtual phone rooms made the mistake of calling one of the 1-800 numbers on one of these postcards back in April. And I'm still getting uh, a call every day from that company asking me if I would like to sell their house or text or a slide aisle. That, that's, that's probably a bit much, people. Anyway, it's, be, it's starting to be talked about as if it were a necessary thing for your, for your real estate business. And I, I, I will say... There are there are some kinds of prospects that I would absolutely call every time without even thinking about it. If I saw a property with all the furniture out on the street, which means what? It means that landlord not only had to file an eviction, the tenant still didn't move and he had to pay a bunch of people to move all of their stuff out onto the street that day. And that landlord is maybe feeling pretty motivated to get rid of that property right at that moment. And I would absolutely track him down and call him and say, Hey, I saw your house and I saw that all the stuff was on the street. And I assume that means your tenants moved. Do you want to think about selling it now while it's vacant? Somebody I would absolutely never call would be a representative or executor in or surrogate as they're called in some parts of the country in an estate case. And the reason is that that person is almost always a close relative of the person who died. And come on, that's, that's a little, that's a little much to be picking up the phone and calling somebody whose mom died and saying, can I buy your house? Like there was, his next question was, what would you say? And the answer is, I can't come up with one single good thing to say that's not a lie to somebody like that. I mean, you could pretend like you didn't know what was going on. You could pretend that, oh, hey, I just, I saw your house, but come on, they're going to know. And just disturbing somebody with a sales call when you know that what has happened is that their relative has passed away just doesn't, it doesn't seem 
like a good idea to me. So the answer to your question, what would I say is nothing. I would send them a letter and I would say, hey, I'm sorry about your loss. And if you have a piece of real estate you need to sell and you'd like to do that without fixing it up, I'm here for you. Right? So that's just just because in, in, in the real estate business, just because something is fashionable or trendy uh, does not mean it's a good thing to do. I've, I've seen some of these things come and go before where like everybody's saying you should do such and so back in back in 2009 10 in through there there was this there was this huge thing in the water about doing subject to assignments by which i mean you would go and find somebody who who wanted to sell their house and was probably underwater on it that was pretty common in 2009 and they they were going to move one way or another. So you took over their payments, like you got the deed, but instead of lease optioning it or renting it, you, you then took some money and transferred the deed to someone who wanted to live there. And oh my gosh, I had, I had huge issues with that. Convincing somebody that they should let you take over the payments because you'll make them. And then transferring that responsibility to somebody that, you don't actually know if they can make them and 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 not staying in the middle where you could do anything about it if the buyer didn't make the payments oh huge issues but everybody was talking oh yeah this is the latest thing well it's kind of gone the way of the dinosaur at this point it's it's 10 years later and you basically never hear about it anymore because people got in trouble for doing it i i don't think cold calling is going to go away but i think this idea of every single First, every single person on every single list is somebody that you should cold call. I think that I think uh, sense will take over at some point in that. A uh, question from Jennifer in Cleveland. The the, the uh, headline of the question says, "Need to find a general contractor in Cleveland." And then the question says, "I have a house. I'm needing to do a complete renovation. Need a contractor. How do I find one?" Uh, so, Jennifer, the first question I would ask you is, are you sure that what you're looking for is a general contractor? Because that's the person who you make a you make a single contract with and you say, I will pay X tens of thousands of dollars to do this renovation. And then they provide all of the people to do it. So all, all of the people who, who are doing it work for the general contractor as opposed to directly for you. And it's it's obviously a very convenient setup because you're just dealing with one person and they're dealing with the scheduling and the planning and the it's not that there's nothing for you to do. You still have to tell them what you want done and all that, that sort of thing. But it is, um, it is convenient in that, in theory, uh, you don't need to go supervise and make sure that there are people on the site and make sure the work's being done right. That is the general contractor's job. Most uh, renovators don't use a general contractor. They use they act as their own general contractors and they use subcontractors. Why would they do that? Because it's a lot cheaper, like like probably twenty percent cheaper for you to just go straight to the guy who installs the windows and straight to the electrician electrician and straight to the plumber. Uh, the, the general contractor has to 
pay his guys and then also make a profit for himself. So whatever whatever they're making, he's getting an override on that. And a guy that might cost you, I don't know why I'm saying guy, some of the girls, a guy or girl that might cost you 50 bucks an hour with a general contractor involved might cost you $150 an hour. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. So first thing is, you know, think through, do you really want a GC or do you really want to, do you really want subcontractors? Finding a general contractor right now who has the, has the bandwidth to do a complete renovation and also is willing to do it at sort of investor prices is a little tough. There's still a big labor shortage in that market. Most GCs find it much more profitable to work with homeowners who don't bat an eye when they tell them that the kitchen renovation that they want is $60,000, where you want it done for twenty-five dollars or $30,000 or ten or fifteen. So that's kind of a practical issue in that world right now. Uh, it's easier to find subcontractors than it is to find a general contractor who will work within the numbers that you need to pay as a as a person who wants to sell this house for a profit. Uh, in terms of getting either one, I would go to your local real estate group and I would uh, ask everybody I could collar who's your general contractor, who's a good general contractor, who's your window person, who's your roof person, who's your... And I would get recommendations from other investors who have worked with these folks. If you want to go to the Real Life Real Estate Archive, which is at realliferealestate.com, you can uh, look for a an interview that I did, I, I want to say it was about a year ago, with a guy named Derek Christian, who is a general contractor and who talked about some of the challenges of hiring folks like that and and what you're looking for in subcontractors in terms of interviewing them and making sure they're for real and all of that sort of thing so good luck um if you want a gc i hope you find one but i'm not super optimistic about it and if you want to find subs i would go to your rear group and talk to them about it you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. If you got a question, give us a call, 877-772-9658, or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which is in some ways my favorite week, and in some ways it's a little terrifying because some weeks I'm just like, you know, overwhelmed with a tidal wave of questions. And some weeks, not so much. Some weeks I'm filling in a lot of time talking real slow like this because folks are not sending questions into askvina at gmail.com or calling 877-772-9658. A question here by email from Amy in uh, North Carolina in the Raleigh area. She says, I feel like I'm missing something. I'm speaking with sellers, mostly for sale by owner, which could be the issue, getting their information and all. And when I ask if they'll accept payments, they say no, because they want full price. After a little more chit chat, I leave the door open with, if it doesn't work out, let me know. Maybe we can revisit that thought. Anyway, as stated earlier, it feels like I'm missing something, but I don't want to beat a dead horse. I've targeted others that could possibly be more motivated than for sale by owner, but I'm taking action. And then there's a big grinny face emoji. 
Yes. So good for taking action, Amy. That's awesome that you're doing that. Um, When you say for sale by owners, I'm thinking you're talking about you're going to people who've advertised their homes for sale on Zillow or Craigslist or one of the many other places where people can say, I have a house for sale. And the, the basic problem with those kinds of folks is there's no reason to think they are particularly motivated. I mean, do they want to sell their houses? Yes, probably. Do they, do they have some kind of problem that makes them need to sell fast or sell on terms or sell cheap or any of the things that we are usually able to help with. And the answer is absolutely no reason to think that that is true. Just because I have figured out how to use Zillow and post pictures of my property and say that it's for sale does not mean that I'm anything other than looking for a full price, all cash buyer. In fact, I find that many times with for sale by owners, what's what's happening is they're trying to get full price and also not pay a commission. So they're they're kind of like reverse motivated. They they not only they not only don't want to take a discount, they don't even want to pay 6% for an agent to expose the property to MLS where they're likely to get a whole lot more notice of the property and a whole lot more action on the property. So I think your your basic issue here is you're dealing with a group of people that are not are not motivated to sell any way other than if they get their price and they get all cash for it. The kind of people who take payments on their properties are people who are in a different sort of situation like uh, they can't make their next payment because they lost their job or they bought another house and they're making the payments on that house or their tenant moved out and without a tenant they can't make a payment on a property Uh, or they are people who are in a situation where unless they repair the property like unless they do some upgrades and whatnot they are not going to be able to sell the house for a whole lot more than what they owe on it and they can't do the repairs or they don't want to do the repairs or whatever the situation might be. So because they can, because the only way they can sell their house without bringing money to the closing is in a takeover payments kind of deal, that's what they end up doing. And there's, again, no reason to think that any particular for sale by owner is in that situation exactly. So uh, if you were dealing with sellers who were in more, of, of the typical categories that we work with, people who are behind on payments, behind on taxes, um, have vacant houses, things like that. I think you'd have much better luck. But also you understand that of every 20 to 30 people you ask about either taking over payments or taking payments, only one's going to say okay to that, right? I don't know how many people you've called, but it's not like every other person's going to say, oh yeah, it sounds good. So it's an unusual thing for people to do and they have to be they have to be motivated enough to even hear you out about it and I think most of the people you've been talking to probably aren't. Question from Barry. He says, "Can you have a a probate investing expert in Ohio on the show as a guest to discuss pro Ohio probate laws which are quite different than those in California 
investor challenges in this niche and how they can suggest that we get probate leads. Um, and so, so Barry, that's a, that's a thing that I struggle with here a lot because we have a national listenership here at Real Life Real Estate and yet I am in Ohio, right? My groups are in Cincinnati and Columbus. I'm involved with the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. So I'm always kind of walking this line between trying not to get too specific about how things work in any given state and also how to make the folks who are most likely to listen to my show who are here in Cincinnati most uh, happy. So uh, probably probably not going to get an Ohio probate expert on the show. Um, probably will get one at the you know Cincinnati and Columbus RIA groups at some point this year or early next year. And if you are a member of any Ohio RIA group, you can come to Cincinnati and Columbus's meetings at no charge. You just have to show your membership card from the group that you are in. So, um, like, try and pay attention to, to that. Try and pay attention to CincinnatiRIA.com and CentralOhioRIA.com, and we'll see if we can get that topic. We actually just did that topic uh, for Kentucky at the Cincinnati RIA Northern Kentucky chapter, like, yesterday. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny that you asked that question. Uh, let's see. Next up, we have a question from. Oh, I got to back out of Barry's question here. We have a question from David. That is, um, this is this is another one that's kind of like like David. You are the only person that I think is ever going to ask me this question, ever. Like for the whole rest of my life, I think this is the only time I'm going to get asked this question. Uh, he says, we're selling a rental property in Raleigh, North Carolina, and want to buy a rental property in Valencia, Spain, where we will later retire. I'm told I can't do a 1031 exchange from U.S. to a foreign property, and therefore will have a substantial capital gains tax bite. Are there any strategies to avoid this? We are in the process of selling the rental now, and living in it for a period of time beforehand is not an option. So... David, I, you, you just said that the thing that the only other thing I had to suggest is not possible for you. The, 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 the other thing that you could potentially look at and talk to your tax expert about doing is moving into the rental, living there for two years, and then selling it as a homeowner and thus being entitled to the homeowner exemption of $250,000 when you sell it however that conversion process where you move it out of your llc and into your own name could have its own tax consequences so i would always say talk to your talk to your tax expert i was it's funny cuz i was just i was just literally an hour ago answering some questions for inner circle members and some someone said can you give me a list of all of the tax advantages to a seller of selling to me on payments instead of on instead of for cash and i said okay so here's here's the thing if i give you this list you're going to then go give people tax advice and that's a terrible idea because it literally is individualized what somebody's tax consequences for doing any particular thing might be 
And in in general, here are some of them, but you always, 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 always want to say to somebody, go talk to your own tax advisor. Don't just take my word for what the IRS is going to say about this. So other than um, either moving into the house, which you say you can't do, or the United States annexing Spain and therefore it being a U.S. territory, which I don't see happening anytime soon, I think you are going to be stuck paying those capital gains taxes. Although, what about an opportunity zone thing? If you move the money first into an opportunity zone zone fund and then held it for the required amount of time and then sold it and avoided some of those capital gains taxes then I, I think your time frame might be important here and you need to listen to the show last week about opportunity zones i'm sorry it was two weeks ago about opportunity zones at real life real estate uh, and then you need to talk to an expert on that because that's that's a possibility. You might be, if you if you're not looking to buy a property in Spain like tomorrow, if if you want to do that in five years or something, that might be a possibility for you. But t- talk to your tax expert is my general message there. And thank you for your email. A uh, question. This is another question from Pat in Indianapolis. She must have heard me say. Sometimes I get a lot of questions and sometimes I don't. She says, thank you for answering my earlier question. Yes, I'm doing retailing. Uh, The other questions, the other question that I have is I started doing mailings for two wholesale properties. I have done one mailing with a thousand mailings, but did not get a deal. Would you suggest how many mailings I should do for wholesaling just starting out? Well, I can suggest that a thousand mailings with no deals is probably not typical if you're doing the right mailings to the right people uh, I would have expected that out of those thousand names those thousand prospects you would have gotten at least 30 leads uh, maybe more like 50 if you had a really good marketing piece and had really done a good job with the lists and out of 30 to 50 leads you should have had one to two deals so I'm going to ask you the question, to whom did you mail and what did you mail? People are people are very fascinated with having mailings done for them. And a lot of the done for you mailings that go out from these companies that they just, you know, they, they get the list, they've got the postcard, you can you can usually pick from, you know, four or five different pieces that you want to mail. A lot of the mailings that come out of those companies are awful. They're threatening, they're rude, they're, they feel stalkery, uh, they, d- they don't even mention that you're looking to buy a house, they, they hint that there's something really wrong and you'd better call this 1-800 number if you're going to find out what it's about. And they tend to get, they tend to get low qualified response rates. I'm sure they get a lot of phone calls to that. 800 number but um that those are people who are calling because they're scared not people because they're calling because they're looking to sell uh so it could be the mailing it could be the list there's a couple of lists out there that are super common that have very low response rates absentee owners being one high equity owners being one 
And so if it was on one of those lists that might explain it, you, you probably should be looking at how, how do I, how do I do a thousand mailings, get more calls, not, not how many more thousands of mailings do I need to do in order to get a deal. Um, so there's, there's stuff uh, about, about was it the right market? Was it the right medium? And was the right message? And I don't know which one was the problem because I haven't seen your mailing or know who you mailed it to. But uh, it would be great if it would be great if um, you d- d- didn't just accept that there were going to be a thousand mailings and no deal. That that's not that's not something you should just accept. Okay, question from Michael. And I'm not sure where Michael's from. It just says Michael. How large is the market for zombie foreclosures that are available for the taking with no mortgage payments, with property taxes, and insurance paid by the lender? Oh, okay. So so that combination of things does not exist. Zombie properties, which are something we've talked about here on Real Life Real Estate Investing before, are properties where the bank has abandoned a foreclosure. They, they've written off the loan. They decided not to take the property back because it was in too rough a shape or had too many building orders or they didn't feel like the, the value of the property was going to equal the cost of the foreclosure and the subsequent sale. Those banks are not paying the taxes and insurance, though. It, one, one of the things that you find with those is that um, is that they tip, typically are loaded with back taxes. The lenders do not pay the back taxes on properties that they don't intend to take back. So th- the question of how large is the market for zombie foreclosures depends on where you are in the country. There, in expensive markets where the land would be worth you know, multi tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, the banks did not drop foreclosures. They went ahead and, and, and went through with them. In the Midwest and South, uh, there are still a lot of them out there. Uh, however, I think that's something that's only going to go on for another couple of years because most of those foreclosures were dropped between 09 and about 2014. And that means that the back taxes are now getting to be five years old, which means that they are going to tax sale at an increasing rate. It it's, there's still, I, I would guess, I mean, I don't think anybody's got a number on this. I would guess there's still a five figure number of them out there, but there won't be in another two or three years because they will all get processed through the tax sale process ultimately. But you are going to have to, you are going to have to ultimately uh, pay the back taxes, and they are also not insured. Don't don't think that they are insured. Okay, uh, going back to actually, I'll do that after the break because I've got to process this myself. Um, I've got to got to figure out exactly what this what this means. Um, it's real life real estate investing. It's question and answer week. If you have a question, ask Veen at gmail.com or 877-772-9658. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week, processing 
uh, questions mostly that are coming in via at via askvina at gmail dot com. I don't think we had one call today. It's all been email, email, email. A uh, question from Harold. He says, a woman has agreed to sell me two houses her recently deceased father owned. She is the administrator of his estate. I intend to present a separate purchase agreement for each house. What should the name of the seller be? Uh, typically, it's going to be her name as executor or administrator. You said she's an administrator. Apparently, there wasn't a will. So to be uh, Sharon Smith as executor for the estate or administrator for the estate of Mike Martini. So that's the, that's the, she, she's the one who has to sign the purchase agreement because she's the one who is, has been appointed by the court to deal with that. And yet she is not the owner. The estate is the owner. So you put her name as the administrator of so-and-so's estate. Uh, Christine from Columbus says, Oh, goddess, please tell me if I am allowed to collect the rent for the last month at lease signing. Uh, the answer is yes, you are. Um, in some, it, actually, in some parts of the country, it is standard operating procedure that you collect the first month's rent, the last month's rent, and the security deposit at lease signing. Now that that's less common here in Ohio and what you can legally do versus what you can practically do when there are other landlords out there who do not collect the last month's rent uh, is, a, is a different question. But yes, legally you can do it. The question is, can you get a tenant to pay it when other people are not? requiring that as part of a rental agreement. A uh, question from Michael. Well, this is a quick one. Uh, is it okay for an acquisitionist to be 1099? What if the acquisitionist is a real estate agent? So um, here's how I'm going to explain to everybody else what an acquisitionist is, Michael. And if I'm incorrect in what you mean by this, you can Certainly send me another email and correct me. But I think I think you're talking about somebody whose job it is to interview potential sellers, maybe to even get the marketing out to them, to do things like um, find out what orders there might be on the property, to run comps, things like that. In, in other words, they're going to do kind of the administrative work around getting you deals. And... You're, you're asking if they can be a 1099 employee, and the answer is, it depends. In Ohio, and I believe that this is true in most states of the union, if this person is being compensated for a deal closing, in other words, they get, they're basically being paid on commission, right? They're getting some percentage of your profit on a deal, they generally have to either have a real estate license or be what the law says is a salaried employee of the owner. Uh, and actually, to be uh, those are those are actually those. Let's let me let me reframe that. If they're getting a commission, they need to have a real estate license. If they don't need to have a real estate license, if they are a salaried employee of yours. So that would be different than commission, right? That's you get paid to sit here at this phone for eight hours a day and talk to people. 
Uh, that's a different thing. Generally doesn't have to have to have a real estate license. Now the question is, does salaried mean W-2 or does it mean 1099? Because the, the law is not super clear on that point. And you can obviously pay a 1099 employee by the hour. You don't have to pay them by the deal or by the week or whatever. And therefore, you know, is that a salaried person, you know, or, or, or you could just say you could, you can pay them by the month, right? That's, or, or say, say you make X dollars a month instead of X dollars an hour, or you make X dollars a year instead of X dollars an hour. Uh, to get, you could try to get clarification on that from your, your state's division of real estate. Um, I'm not sure that they would be able to sort out what the legislature meant when they wrote that 40, 50 years ago. But I can tell you for sure that if they're being paid to acquire deals, like like they, they don't get paid unless you get paid, uh, they're going to need to have a real estate license. And a person with a real estate license, either way, whether they're 1099, W-2, whatever, they can work for you doing acquisitions type work. Um, I understand why you want to do the 1099 because you're trying to avoid all the withholding and the, you know, having to pay taxes, you know, the employer matching part of the taxes. Uh, and it's just kind of a pain in the butt to do all the filings that you have to do when somebody's a W-2 employee. But you you do want to be careful about this uh, really as much for your potential employee's sake as for as for your own sake. So I, w- I would try and get some clarification from an employment attorney and also from your state's division of real estate about what they think about only this. I'm going to pay the guy by the hour and he's not getting a commission because if he's getting a commission, he needs to have a real estate agent. I can absolutely guarantee. All right. So last question and also the end of the show. <laughs> it's so great when those two things coincide when I'm not looking at questions that I didn't get to answer and I'm not just filling time. So thank all of you folks for uh, the great and wide variety of questions that you sent in today. We will uh, definitely be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>